The main strategy that we look at in these rural communities is a program we call Mobility by Design because no two communities in the U.S. are alike. And so Mobility by Design is about community empowerment. It's about leaders working together. It's about community members banding together to say we want to see change happen. Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Rural Matters. You know, we're the leading podcast on rural education, health and business in the United States. I'm your host, Michelle Rathman. And of course, when I'm not hosting Rural Matters, you can find me speaking around the country on matters of rural health, including leadership, culture improvement, strategies to improve community stakeholder engagement. And of course, as you know, from listening to the program, I'm very focused on addressing our nation's rural hospital uh, closure crisis, and we certainly are facing one that, uh, today. So you can find um, where I'm speaking next if you visit michellerathman.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at MRB Impact. And as always, we hope that you'll follow the podcast on social as well. We're easy to find. Just search for at Real Matters Pod. Uh, we're very excited, as always, to have you tune in with us. So whether you're listening on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, uh, we hope that you'll subscribe to Rural Matters and receive new episodes automatically. We, again, really appreciate you joining us in that way. All right, so today we're going to talk about something that we have not had an opportunity to address on this podcast before, but I think um, anyone who works and lives in the rural space can agree that this is a challenge. So I'm going to ask you this. Did you know that one billion people today do not have access to transportation. Now that's nearly one in seven people worldwide or three times the population of the United States. Of course, a large portion of those individuals are living in um, developing countries, but it's estimated that, and, and our guest is gonna correct me if I'm wrong on here, about 15 million Americans lack adequate transportation options. So when an individual lacks uh, adequate transportation, the effects can be dire. Lack of access to transportation means a lack of access to health care, education, employment, social events like church or seeing family. And of course, this can lead to a familiar situation with isolation. So um, I have got someone who really knows this subject uh, like no one else I can think of. So we're really pleased to be joined by Valerie Leffler, and she is the ex executive director of Phoenix Mobility Rising. I love the name of the organization, Phoenix Mobility Rising. And she is a recognized international expert on rural transportation and mobility as a service in low population density communities. In less than a year, Phoenix has launched programs in five states, and we're going to talk about those today with notable partners, including the National Aging and Disability Transportation Center, Easter Seals, the AARP Office of Driver Safety, and the Michigan Department of Transportation. So we're really excited, Valerie, to have you on the podcast, and you're going to kind of walk us through the challenge, and I know you're going to share with us a whole bunch of solutions that your organization is working on. Michelle, thank you so much for having me. We're just really excited and honored to be here today. Thank you so much. Now, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading on this subject. And of course, in my work with rural hospitals and rural clinics, you know, we talk about the fact that there, for example, are a lot of no-show rates because it's not that a person doesn't want to come back in for their follow-up care, but they simply won't have the means. It's not like we can just, you know, use the Uber app um, in the middle of some of the communities that I work in. So before we talk about the work that you are doing to address transportation disparities, let's have you kind of lay out for us what a prevalent challenge this really is. Sure, absolutely. So rural transportation in the United States really varies dramatically. In some communities, they may have six transportation options. 
but the vast majority have maybe one public transportation option. Um, and, and it's very kind of fragmented in, in terms of you can't get past the county line or maybe even the city limits. Um, you may have to call two to five days in advance to book your ride. Um, there's no service after five and there's no service on the weekends. So if I get sick, uh, let's say Friday late afternoon and I, um, I'm not feeling well, um, I may say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to have to call and, and get a ride. You may not be able to get a hold of anybody till Monday to book mm -hmm. your ride. It may be Tuesday or Wednesday by the time you're able to actually get into the doctor. Um, so, you know, if I needed a, let's say I needed a doctor visit and antibiotic on Friday night, by the time I get to the doctor on Tuesday or Wednesday, it might be a hospitalization or, um, it, you know, requires, you know, more IV drugs than, than an office visit. And in particular, when you're working with senior health needs, um, getting access to transportation in a very timely manner is, is absolutely essential, but it is, it is a challenge, um, you know, it's not just I think I think it's important for folks to know and another statistics that I read, Valerie, and you can, again, fill me in on where I might be missing something is that, you know, you're talking about public transportation options. But if we look at the at the base of this challenge, we're also looking at the fact that roughly two million people living in rural areas have no access to a personal vehicle. So aside from having, um, you know, really a lack of public transportation options in so many communities, you know, not having your own vehicle to travel, uh, that's also very much a challenge. Absolutely. Absolutely. And many times um, you may not have access to a vehicle being relying on public transportation or family or friends. And that is a very challenging situation. So, for example, in the state of Nebraska, there is, I think, um, 19 counties that have zero access to transportation. There's no public transportation. There's no private transportation. There ain't no Uber or Lyft mm -hmm. uh, you're on your own and your friends and your family. And so, you know, and that's not dissimilar to, you know, every state in the, in the U.S. where there are our counties that there just is, is no access. I read and, a, a Pew Research study that showed about 43% of rural communities um, lack access to public transportation. So that just, you know, kind of you know, puts it right, right out there, almost half. And, and that's pretty significant. Absolutely. And, and even the folks that do have access to public transportation, you're not going out after five, you're not doing anything on the weekend, and you have to think two to three days in advance. And that's really tough, especially, you know, I think about a time when uh, my daughter was working with my son or my husband in the garage and, you know, the, a wood chip sh flew off and got into her eye. And, you know, I needed to get her to the doctor like stat. And, you know, the doctor said, well, the wood was treated with this chemical. And if you wouldn't have gotten her in there, Within, you know, another couple of hours, this could have damaged her, her vision. And so, I think about that. If I was that mom in that rural county and I didn't have a vehicle, I'm thinking my daughter's waiting three days mm -hmm. to be seen because she has something in her eye. Um, you know, think about the long-term vision impact for the child, the cost of care increasing, the anxiety on the mom, you know, all those moving pieces that go a part of that. 
And it was a simple ride to the doctor. And those stories repeat themselves over and over again. And of course, so we know about, you know, in, a, in an acute uh, medical crisis, but a couple of things I just wanted to touch base and if we can get into just a little bit of detail, it's not just the transportation itself because we are, you know, the rural transportation disparities, um, we are also talking about roads and bridges and infrastructure. And so I would imagine, and as, as you get into telling us more about the work that you're doing, these are all add-on. These are all factors that you have to be considering when you're working on a, a solution for any particular community. Absolutely. I mean, the transportation infrastructure is all interconnected, mm-hmm. but also so, so, so is the funding. So when we talk with county commissioners and rural communities in particular, you know, I had one county commissioner say, well, by the time I pay for salaries for the sheriff's department and all the critical resources that we're required to provide, I've got $16,000 left in the budget. Wow. And we have a bridge that gets washed out. I have to decide between funding public transit and replacing that bridge for the three farmers that count on getting across that road to get their crops out of the field. And those are the those are the realities of of rural budgets in many communities and and you know it's it's like it's really hard to get outside of that. Well, where else do I look for funding as a rural transit manager or a county commissioner? Like, well, how else am I going to get funding for this stuff? And that's where kind of we come in is coming together to help find alternative partnerships and sponsorships and collateral funding. And, and we know of the 140 organizations or 140 departments in the federal government that fund transportation and, and help apply for those grants. And so I think the, 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 Budget is real when it comes to maintaining the gravel roads and maintaining the infrastructure of these communities, and you know the the ways of well, we always used to do it this way, or this is the way it's always been done. Mm-hmm. We have to also change that that mindset when it comes to rural transportation. So we've kind of laid the groundwork here. We know that personal transportation can be extremely challenging in many rural areas. We know that public transportation is um, sparse, although there's some really encouraging things happening that you'll share with us. And we talked about roads and bridges and infrastructure and how we go about paying, you know, paying for those things to make sure, for example, that when there is an EMS agency, they have safe passage. So we know there's a lot of challenges, but I really want us to kind of move into how Phoenix Mobility Rising. And I, again, I love saying the name of the organization. I, I'm curious how you came up with the name. How are you filling the transportation gaps in rural communities? Let's talk some about that. Sure, absolutely. So the the main um, kind of strategy that we look at in these rural communities is a program we call Mobility by Design, because no two communities in in the U.S. are alike, and even parts of you know very urban areas, no two parts are alike, right? And so Mobility by Design is about community empowerment. It's about leaders working together. It's about community members banding together to say, we want to see change happen and we're going to make it happen. And then through that process, you know, goals are set, initiatives are developed and actions are taken. And we just help provide that framework and then the technology behind it um, to make those things happen. And so, um, so for example, uh, one of the core components of mobility by design is what we call a mobility leadership circle. And this is really the folks in the community who are coming together to say we need to ch- we need more transportation options for our community. Mm-hmm. We need more access to healthcare and education and 
um, church services and and all sorts of things. And so those leaders, we we look from the VA, we get the veteran service officer, we get the school department of ed, uh, whether they're a social service coordinator or their superintendent, whoever. Um, we get the hospital involved. If there is public and private transportation, we bring them in the circle. It's it's not about working on top of them. It's about complementing what's already there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we get major employers. We get chambers of commerce. We get, um, you know, major uh, folks in the community who are pillars of um, action. And we, we come together and we say, here are the, here are the challenges that, have, that we're experiencing and that we're facing and we want to see change. And then we work towards that. So you're really serving um, as kind of a convener, a convener of all the stakeholders and then really walking them methodically, if you will, through a process um, that is right-sized for their rural community. Absolutely. And, and there's things that we can we bring to the table. So I remember... Uh, working with a community in rural Colorado, and they were talking about wanting more transportation for a group of farmers that were needing employees to get to the mushroom farms. Hmm. And, you know, this particular organization was led by a bank. And the bank said, you know, we have this initiative, we need this for the employers, we're willing to put 40 grand on the table to make this happen. And I was like, well, have you contacted the Colorado Department of Transportation? They have a really vibrant van pool program. And they're like, oh, van, what, what a program? Mm-hmm. A van pool program. And this is a program that comes from the FTA to every state in the U.S. to help facilitate employment transportation. And he's like, I've never heard of that before. And so there's things that we just kind of in our vernacular that in these rural communities, you know, their community development planners aren't going to mobility summits, you know. Right. They're trying to figure out like how are we gonna how are we gonna make it through or that they don't have travel budgets to spend two thousand dollars and learn about this stuff. You know, it, it it doesn't trickle down very far sometimes. And so that's where we come in is we're like, okay, are you interested in veterans transportation? Well, here's six ways to do that. You're interested in employment transportation, here's 10 ways to do that. You want to get people to healthcare, here's 50 ways to do that. And, and we work together to really strategize and say, okay, what are your goals? Because we can't tell them what their goals are. That has to be driven. And so you've activated, um, I think what I read, you have like five really, five states you're in, right? Was it Michigan, South Carolina? Help me remember what some of those are. And if you could just kind of give us a snapshot, you just mentioned something about a, a community in Denver, um, but you, you're kind of mobilized, if you will, in five different states. And if you could just pick out, you know, one of those states where you've seen, you know, just an incredible level of progress after you brought these stakeholders together and started working on a solution. Sure. So in that program, we're really fortunate to partner with the East Central Wisconsin Regional Planning Commission and Make the Right Happen, which is a program of Lutheran Family Services. And in that collaboration, um, the group of folks came together um, with two particular nonprofits. One was the Department of Economic Development and one is called Forward Services that helps um, individuals seek job placement and kind of provides that wraparound kind of social support to help somebody who's maybe a reentering citizen or a refugee who just really needs that wraparound support in that in that time of transition, um, and have said, okay, we need to fill in the gaps for transportation because they do have rural public transportation, and they do have some urban options, but there are gaps, mm-hmm. there's especially gaps for moms, and there's especially gaps for third shifts for those night. Oh yeah, uh, transportation. Mm-hmm. 
And so it was just really fantastic to see, um, you know, this group of folks come together, which included also the University of Wisconsin Extension Office, the Department of Public Health, local health partners as well with the Partnership Health Clinic and, and just really say, okay, we need to change transportation in our community focused around starting with employment and get folks to work. Um, and so together, every Friday, this group of community stakeholders has met for over a year wow. and said, we want to see change happen. And so we put together a plan and our goal was to have um, 75 rides a month. Again, this is a rural community, 75 rides a month. Um, I think it was by November. And today we're providing over 100 rides a week. Wow, that's outstanding. That's outstanding. You know, I want to take a really quick break to acknowledge our sponsors for today. Um, and when we come back, I know we've talked about how, um, you know, the role of transportation and how that plays itself out with healthcare. But I also want to talk with you about economic development and job growth. I think um, that for those of us who are mobile, who have uh, transportation options, uh, it's kind of a no brainer. You know, we know how we're going to get to our place of employment every day. But I, I want you to share with us a little bit about your perspectives when it comes to economic development and job growth and the impact that transportation has. But first, I, of course, want to acknowledge our sponsors for today's episode. And you've been hearing me talk uh, with Valerie today. We are very pleased to welcome Phoenix Mobility Rising as a new partner. Um, Phoenix Mobility Rising creates mobility solutions, technology, educational programs, and global communities around the common goal of transportation for all. They provide world-class mobility management, accessibility, and equal access assurance, training and technology support in each community partnership and deployment. Phoenix is dedicated to supporting mobility for vulnerable and underserved populations. And you can learn more about them at phoenixmobilityrising.org. And I want to spell that for you just so you know. It's F-E-O-N-I-X mobilityrising.org. I'm also really thankful to once again um, have the Foundation for Rural Service or FRS as our partner. FRS works in cooperation with NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, and its members to sustain and enhance the quality of life in rural America through a generous community grant program, scholarships for students entering college or technical school, a summer learning experience in Washington, D.C. for high school students, nonpartisan issue-based white papers, and other educational programs. FRS focuses on educating rural youth, encouraging community development, and introducing policymakers to challenges unique to rural communities. And you can learn more about their work at frs.org. All right, so let's get back to this uh, discussion. I'm Again, really glad that we have an, uh, an opportunity to talk about today because transportation, um, in my mind, you know, I think about Valerie, all the different communities I travel to and I land at an airport, let's just say in Portland, Oregon, and I'll drive for two and a half, three, four hours to get to one of the locations that I work in. And I'm fortunate to be able to get into a rental car and go. And then so often what I will do is, you know, when I work at a hospital or clinic, you know, I just see um, some of the observations i kind of lurking parking lots. I want to see how traffic flows, how people have access to the getting inside the facility and so forth. And a conversation that I've had so often um, with the hospital folks that I work with is how challenging it can be for patients to come in for, let's just say, um, weekly infusion treatments, for example, or, you know, uh, just anyone who lives in, in an area where transportation is a challenge with a chronic illness and how difficult and challenging it can be to find a ride. 
So we've talked about that. What I'm curious about um, in, in the work that you're doing and, and some of the results that you've seen, what is the impact on economic development and job growth, for example, where transportation is concerned? So one of the key things that we see in rural communities with, with rural transportation is you need that consistent on time, same day, I need to get there at eight o'clock and I'm going to be done at five and I may have kids and I may not be, I have to drop them off at school on the way. So many times public transportation is really tough in a rural community to use to get to and from um, your, your job. And so when you're working with, um, you know, especially if you're going into the workforce after a while or you've been out of the workforce or this is your first time um, getting a job, for example, especially if you have a disability in a rural mm -hmm. community, it's really challenging. And so when it comes to job growth and seeing those, those jobs get filled um, it is a huge win and a huge success, especially when you can, you can put it local in the community. And so we have very frequently departments of economic development reaching out to us, councils of government reaching out to us um, to, to find that support and, and how we've, fill that need is also in working with the uh, volunteers in the community where we provide mileage as part of this whole kind of ecosystem. And so in order to, um, you know, help somebody get door to door right on, you know, I need to be at my daycare to drop off my kids at this time. And then I need to be at work at this time. You know, that may be, you know, if you were on the bus or you were to take public transit, that might be a two to three hour arrangement. And it might only be minutes in a vehicle if you were driving yourself. So with volunteer drivers or with what we call our freedom driver program, um, they're paid mileage. Sometimes that comes from grants that we receive as part of the program, such as in Wisconsin, we have grants from the state as well as a community foundation that make that happen. Um, or that might be private pay or it might be cost share where the, patient, the passenger pays some and the grant pays some. Um, or it may be employer funded where they really need to get those, those shifts filled and they're willing to fund those first six weeks of transportation um, to get somebody their first couple paychecks so they can get their own car or make other arrangements. So let's talk a little bit more about that Freedom Driver program. Um, so, so explain exactly how that works if it's employ, uh, deployed in one of the communities you're working with. Sure, sure. So that's the other piece of the community engagement. So the, the mobility leadership circle are really like those high level stakeholders that are the movers and shakers in, in making change happen. And then the freedom drivers in all of these communities that we serve really fill in the gaps of where the transportation are. And they're volunteers that receive mileage. They are folks who are passionate about making a difference. Um, we get a lot of retired veterans in our program. Roughly 70% of our freedom drivers are retired veterans. Mm -hmm. uh, they're of all ages. Um, they do generally tend to be retired, but we do have in some communities folks who do this on nights and weekends outside of their full-time job. Or if they, for example, in Texas, we have a, a volunteer who has a full-time job working for child protective services. And then, you know, on her days off, you know, volunteers with us, but they're just really agents of change that are committed to their communities and many times just love to drive um, that really help um, activate the community and provide that insight. And so an example of that may be um, they're taking somebody to rides and they say this person is struggling with another need 
and they convey that to us, and then we can bring that to the mobility leadership circle and say, okay, we're addressing, let's say we're addressing food insecurity. And that mobility leadership circle will say, hey, the food pantry has a program on Thursday nights, and we can make that connection for that passenger wow. that otherwise wouldn't have been possible. But it's just creating those connections around um, from the from the passengers who, who have these needs to the leader's knowledge who are able to make those things happen. And so we're just really excited about. You really are, you know, you are bridging so many divides. Um, So I'm curious, so if a community comes to you, so the Freedom Driver program is something that you all have created. And that is something that, let me ask you, would you have a toolkit? Do you guide a community through the process of how to initiate this program? And then I'm also curious um, if you wouldn't mind touching on this, you know, just how do you vet the drivers and the vehicles? I mean, I think most people listening, if you've ever done a Lyft or an Uber, it's kind of a crapshoot. You never know <laughs> the kind of driver you're going to get and the kind of vehicle you're going to get. So I'm just curious um, if you could share with us, you know, how a community w- would reach out to you and then kind of the process that you would even begin to help them implement a program, which is a great program. It just seems like there's a lot of layers of complexity to go through. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So the mobile, the freedom drivers come as part of our mobility design program because they're really the gap filler. So we need mm. people who do this. Oh, that's the freedom drivers. Um, in some cases, it's not, and we look at other alternatives. But many times, there are they, when when it looks when you look at your transportation ecosystem, volunteer drivers are your your fastest path forward to filling those needs. And then from that, you can spin off micro transit or all sorts of things. But it's just a really good if you need it if you need to solve a challenge in the next three months, you know they are a great um, solution. And and so. We, we take care of a lot of those pieces as part of the Freedom Drivers program. So we collaborate to provide marketing materials. We provide the application process. We provide the technology. We provide the insurance. Uh, we provide the training, um, you know, all of those things. And so how kind of that vetting happens um, is basically folks will call and say, um, or they'll apply online or whatever and say, I'm interested in being a driver. So then we do a, a phone interview. Um, we ask them for copies of their vehicle insurance, their um, t- um, you know background check verification, things like that. And then we run the background check and we in their MVR and all those things um, back as far as many years as it'll go. Um, sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's 20, just depends on the state. We also do local and county um, and then see what comes back and, you know, in order to work in our program, you pretty much have to have a squeaky clean record, maybe a speeding ticket in the past couple of years, but that's about it. Um, and then and then we connect them with the technology. We, we provide them with training. We provide them incentives like T-shirts and giveaways and rewards and handwritten cards because it's really part of a tribe. These are This is a national group of folks who are just committed wow. to making the world a better place. And yeah. so that's really fun. It's outstanding. So um, you've you've accomplished a lot. You know, I I didn't read this earlier, but folks, you'll know why um, Valerie was featured by the Smithsonian Magazine and one of the top nine innovators to watch in 2018. You've got a lot going on. I just really want to quickly talk about uh, the technology component because we've mentioned that earlier. It's not just, you know, getting drivers signed up or, you know, making sure they have a vehicle and a good background, but there's technology involved with all of this. And so could you just touch a little bit about the technology component and what that has to do with, you know, ground transportation? Sure, sure. Absolutely. So 
In every community deployment, one of the key things that we look at is what technology can we bring to wrap around to help this community meet their goals? Because there's lots of different technology options out there right now. Um, and we have a couple of really key partners that we work with that we vetted and we say, okay, well, maybe if they need this, they use this option. If they need this, they use that option. And we're kind of technology agnostic, but the two providers that we work with um, on creating applications in particular um, are um, a group out of uh, Lowell, Massachusetts called QRIDE. And then there's a group that we're working with in Finland um, called Kuti. Hmm. And they are um, both have, you know, really secure HIPAA compliant level um, technology bases that we can plug in volunteer drivers, that we can plug in hospitals, that we can plug in, you know, food pantries, social service organizations into requesting those rides and saying, hey, we need a ride for Susan on Tuesday. She needs a wheelchair or she'll need help door to door. And then there's technology also with the drivers that, you know, okay, there's been a ride request, do you accept it, do you not? So part of the reason they're called freedom drivers is because they have the freedom to volunteer when it works for them. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to the fact that they're providing freedom in their communities for people who've been isolated and, and uh, need help in accessing, you know, basic needs. And so, um, you know, the technology solution may be a little bit different depending on the community and what their needs are, but we help find that. And we're experienced in working with state-of-the-art technology and we are, you know, we're good at vetting the um, the wish and a dream in an app versus is this really going to work? Wow. <laughs> you, so you, really you have come so such a long way. Um, so you've got a lot of things going on. What are some of the goals? Um, you know, if you take a look at 2020 and beyond, because I'm sure you're thinking, you know, well beyond this uh, this year. What are some of the things that we can expect to see next? Sure. So, so one of the key things that we expect to see is our goal this year is really to hit a thousand freedom drivers across the communities that we work in in North America um, and to really see that program continue to grow and do good. And then to create communities of knowledge around addressing these national crises with our partners um, around opioid addiction and abuse and support treatment in rural communities, because that is that is a crisis. I've have family and friends that have lost a number of family members around this, this national issue to create um, bodies of knowledge around infant mortality and how are we going to help get more young moms and, and babies to care both pre and post birth up to a year and to create knowledge groups around food insecurity. Because in every community we go into, no matter where it is, is these three things come up over and over and over again. And, and to be able to have leaders across the U.S. come together to facilitate that knowledge and then to have these folks so local on the ground to provide this relevant insight is just really exciting to us. And so, you know, that's one of our, our key programs is to really see that that grow and flourish in our, our mobility by design model. So now someone you heard it here, listeners, they're looking they want to reach a thousand freedom drivers. Uh, so how can organizations First of all, how can an organization reach out to you and maybe just what the first step might look like in a, in a new community? And then how should Freedom Driver, potential Freedom Drivers get hold of you as well? Sure, sure. So if communities are interested in working with us, they can go to mobilitybydesign.org and learn more about the program and fill out an application form. It's, it takes literally less than two minutes and 
we'll set up a conference call with partners on your end and get it set up um, and learn more. And then um, if somebody's interested in being a freedom driver, go to idriveforfreedom.org. And there's, again, a website that lists all the requirements, insurance, background check. You can even meet videos of current drivers and apply online and, and get that first step started. And, and it really takes less, again, than two minutes to apply um, for that first step to get the phone interview. So um, those are the two main pieces that, you know, it, we, how folks can get a hold of us and, and join us. Well, my gosh, Valerie Leffler, you have been such a wealth of information. What I just have to say, what outstanding work that you all are doing to bridge this significant. I mean, one one uh, challenge begets another. So everything you're talking about, I fully support. I congratulate you on your success, your innovation um, and what you've been able to accomplish so far. We, we hope that you'll stay in touch with us. We, we're going to want to hear if, those num- if you've met those numbers and we'll help you in any way that we can to spread the word. So thank you, Valerie. Uh, I also want to acknowledge and thank our Rural Matters marketing partners. They include the Center for Rural Affairs, Community Hospital Corporation, Foundation for Rural Service, the Journal of Research in Rural Education, Learning Blade, and TCA, the Rural Broadband Association, the National Rural Education Association, the National Rural Health Association and Ohio Small Rural Collaborative, as well as AASA, the School School Superintendents Association, and of course, National Rural Assembly. All of these partnering organizations help Rural Matters to be an even more powerful forum for the discussion of the issues affecting rural communities today, just as we uh, as they do about uh, rural transportation disparities. So thanks to all of them. Now, if you'd like more information about Rural Matters, or if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic, we hope that you'll email us at podcasttoday at gmail.com. As always, we appreciate if you would rate this podcast on iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues about us. We hope they'll tune in and listen as well. I'd like to thank Michael Levin Epstein. He's our producer. And again, I'm Michelle Rath. We thank you again for listening and we'll talk to you again next time on Rural Matters.